Hello, my name is Samuel George London, and welcome to Comics for the Apocalypse. On today's very special 150th episode, I speak to comic book legend David Lloyd about what comics he would take into an artificially intelligent robot takeover apocalypse. But before we get into it, I'd like to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Comic Scene. To support their work, you can become a friend of Comic Scene for just £20 a year. When you become a friend, you get access to premium content on the website, including Comic Scene Weekly, Newsstand Comics, Retro Comics, Comic Shop of the Week, and free comic downloads. To find out more, visit comicscene.org. Now, without further ado, on with the show. Hello, David Lloyd. How's it going? Well, hello, Sam. Uh, I'm happy to be here. It's an absolute pleasure and an honour to have you on the show um, on this 150th episode um, that we've managed to reach. I don't know how quite how I've reached 150 over the past few years, but uh, well, it's been yeah. it's been an absolute riot. Well, it's uh, if you're at the end of a microphone and all you have to do is talk to people, it's not not that difficult, is it really? <laughs> You just, you just got to keep on plugging away and then you get there eventually, don't you? Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, well, um, obviously, the vast majority of people know who you are, but I'm going to ask it anyway. But uh, what do you do in the world of comics? Well, uh, I have done uh, a great deal of uh, things uh, since I started uh, in this business, but of course, uh, people know me uh, mainly from something called V for Vendetta, which um, I'm extremely proud to have been involved with, uh, with my uh, writer pal, uh, Alan Moore. Um, uh, that is, without doubt, the most significant thing I've done and has made an impression on lots of people and across the world. Just a bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, this is great. I mean, I you know, I, I'm... I I'm I feel very benefited by this because you know lots of people I know I mean I've been in the business for a while I've seen you know I've met veterans I've met I've met uh, people who just who've been in the business for a long time but they are not lucky enough to have produced anything that has made that that kind of connection and and uh, mm-hmm. you know I just did my best on a on a story that that was a, a good one and uh, and and you know, that was originally meant to say something serious. Um, and mm-hmm. and it did, and it reached people. And, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm just glad to have been associated with that. And and it is the most, uh, the thing that most people would know me from. And uh, I'm very happy with that too. 100%. And, uh, yeah, no, it, it has obviously made a, a massive impact. And the one thing I did want to ask is, is, is how do you feel about the about the mask being kind of, you know, um, taken up as a, um, as a mask for protests. <laughs> well, it's a, yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it? I mean, and the fact that it has, yeah. uh, I think one of the great things about the mask is it has neutrality because either anybody, anybody can use it mm-hmm. for a protest against anything mm-hmm. they perceive to be a tyranny. I mean, I saw it, uh, used by somebody, um, on the assault of the Capitol in America which is kind of insane, right. 
when that is that is that was often used um, for people protesting against fascism on the other side of the world. Um, but but mm-hmm. that's the great thing. It's a it's a great symbol of universal protest, and and I think that's great because uh, we need something that symbolises just universal protest because there are lots of things to protest about in the world, and and especially tyranny. Any anything that people perceive as mm-hmm. a kind of something that is actually not allowing them to to speak freely. Um, Mm-hmm. And that's that's a that's a great thing. I mean, I I prefer it was used for the, you know, the upholding of uh, democracy rather than somebody who wanted to, you know, uh, stage an insurrection. But uh, but that's that's out yeah. of my control. I'm just I'm just very glad that it's become yes. such a great uh, symbol. And uh, um, so 100%. you know that's good. Amazing. It's a hundred percent good, and um, yeah, no, it's it's just it's incredible that you're you're drawing um, your drawings and storytelling um, has become a symbol of that, and and you know for the foreseeable future, it's not just you know um, for the time being. It it really has been made into this legacy, basically. <laughs> well, I, I hope it continues that way. I mean, you know, you you seem confident about the fact that it will be still be around and, and still have meaning i don't know whether it will i mean um right uh something i mean you know there's this thing that happens every year in uh, scotland uh, the million mask march which is actually a whole a bunch mm-hmm. of people who, who wear that mask and they it's a sort of generalized protest against capitalism um and uh, and that's that's a regular occurrence um so that's that's a solidified hopefully solidified event that, that was not the same obviously this year because of covid uh, problems and stuff but but the thing is that that's a solidified uh um example but uh, i don't know whether it will go on it will go on i it would it would be great if it if it was especially i would love it to be some sort of like um a symbol that became not just a symbol of protest, but a symbol of anonymity. Because the more protests there are, the more cameras there are mm-hmm. out there by authoritarian regimes, and they will photograph mm-hmm. everybody. Um, the, the great thing about the anonymity of that mask is that people can go out wearing that, and nobody knows who they are. I mean, every every individual in society has the right to go out as an individual and not an identified individual to go out on the streets with a bunch of other people and say we don't like this um, and we're not going to have it. But uh, but you know once you're identified, they're going to pick you up. I mean the you know it's like Russia right now. I mean Russia. I mean it doesn't matter whether they mask wear a mask or not or whether they're anonymous and yeah. or not in in Russia. You go out on the streets and they just pick you up and say, no, you can't do it. You, we're going to, you know, we're going to put you in jail and that's it. Uh, but, but in an ideal world, it would be great if that mask was like in any kind of pseudo democratic situation that, that, that people would go out and not only represent that the symbolism of that mask, but to also just be, uh, uh, be out there. 
and uh, anonymous and just protesting. But, uh, you know, that's, uh, well, we're in a, a kind of crazy world uh, right now, as well, as you perceive. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, there's definitely um, some kind of um, Nostradamus moments with Viva Vendessa in the world that we're living in now at the moment. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. It's uh, but it's almost past the point of even being. I don't know. uh, It's a kind of ironic about it because it's just you know we're. They they say the history goes in cycles, and and I I just hope to God that we're not in a in a similar cycle right now because you know uh, Putin is is exhibiting all the all the effects that we saw from. Somebody else who thought, well, I think we ought to take over this part of of the globe because really it belongs to us, and uh, you know that's what mm. we want to do, and uh, and we're going to get away with it. And that's that's uh, we've seen all that happen before. For anybody that knows anything about history, and uh, we don't want to see it again, really. Definitely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, and let's let's hope that that comes to. Um, a uh, a nice conclusion. <laughs> like, within, yeah, uh, you can hope. We can hope. Mm, yeah, we can, but hope, can't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's it. Um, now that aside, apart from the pandemic, apart from Putin, um, unfortunately, at the same time, um, there's actually been uh, an artificially intelligent robot uprising to take over society. On top of that. Mm. Um, perhaps one of Elon Musk's um, AIs has gone AWOL and uh, and is taking up at arms of all of the connected machinery that he has um, to his uh, infrastructure. And mm. uh, my my question for you is: in that scenario, uh, what is your action plan for survival? Well, uh, I I think we're in the midway stage, aren't we? According to uh, one of the the um options you gave me about the possibilities of this happening um but yes. uh, yeah all right so i it's a very difficult to to envision exactly your your field of action in a midway stage because something like that you would want to be at the beginning but um if i was at the beginning and uh, i'm so i'm going to reverse my choices <laughs> from what you gave me um, you would obviously have to avoid every single electronic uh, imposition into into how you were going to survive, and that would probably include um, water systems, uh, you know, power systems, and everything else. You would have to, and this is what I hope I've done <laughs> at this point: uh, stock up with lots of cans of food, um, and also. Yeah. Uh, you know the sort of uh, stoves, camper stoves, so that uh, and lots of boxes of matches, um, uh, lots of uh, uh, stuff that you can heat, and also lots of water, lots of bottles of water, and also uh, hot water bottles because um, it's going to get cold at night because you're not going to be, I'm not going to be uh, able to put on the heating because it will be controlled by these by the system um so i'm just gonna if i'm gonna stay reasonably warm it'd be a good idea to have to have hot water bottles um so you'd have those 
you'd have lots of blankets and uh, you'd have to snuggle down and eat as much as you possibly could and uh, and just survive that way. And I don't know, uh, you know, you'd have to try and go out looking for people who were, who were in a similar situation and uh, avoid, uh, avoid the CCTV cameras. So you'd have to... You know, if you, oh, yeah. yeah, you're near. If you were on the, you know, near any woods, you'd have to travel through the woods. Uh, make sure that there was no CCTV, and see and see if you could find anybody around that was in a similar situation, and uh, I don't know, make connections. Uh, but I, I, it would be very difficult. I mean, uh, in a in a situation, in a situation where we all depend on automation of some kind or another, electricity and and something we would we would just you know we would have to just survive without it and that's uh, that's what i would imagine i'd be doing at this particular point in time and uh, um but that this is obviously this you know at this midpoint that i'm at it would be very difficult for me to pick up because all the food in and all the cans in the stores will all be gone and if I was in a situation where I was uh, uh, the midpoint of the circumstance, I'd be in a, a pretty bad situation if I'd, you know, suddenly been plunked down in the middle of it all. Uh, but um, that's what I'd have to do. I'd have to scrabble around and see everything and survive on everything that I could, yeah. I could get that didn't depend on automation. Because as soon as, as soon as uh, electronics found you, they'd just uh, get you. Um, or find you, and if they wanted to kill everybody, apart from the rest of the robots, and uh, they'd have an easy job of doing that, wouldn't they? They certainly would. Would there, would there be anywhere in particular that you try and hightail it to? Um, <clears throat> well, I no, I think well, I think the best thing is you, you'd have to move into a country area because you know you would. Um, you'd have to have the cover of trees. I mean, if you were out in the open, mm-hmm. uh, all the the drones would find you. So you'd have to have the the yeah, you'd have to have the cover of trees. So you you'd have to move into a country area, and as wooded an area as you could possibly find. I think because you know the more wooded area actually there's and there's quite a lot around in uh, in England still. I mean, you you, you would think there there wasn't, but there. You know, uh, if you do travel around England a bit, you know there were extreme, lots of extremely wooded areas, um, and I think that's the only way. If you were uh, that you'd you'd, you'd be able you'd be able to be undetected, and maybe if there was lots of other smart people who were thinking the same, then there'd be lots of encampments that where people were doing the same thing, and that I guess would be that centralised area where the survivors could get together. You know, it's like. You know, you would have the natural cover of lots of trees and wooded areas where you wouldn't be detected. There'd be no, you know, it would be difficult for signals to get through. Um, you know, if you were out on the plains, obviously you wouldn't. You'd be out of the uh, out of the um, range of signals. But then you'd be open. You'd be open to being spotted. So the best place, even though it would be a perfect place, would be any wooded areas. It'd be like uh, be, you'd be going back to like Robin Hood, 
It'd be like it would be like yeah, Sherwood yeah. Forest. You'd be outlaws in yeah. the forest again. It'd be it'd be the return of Robin Hood. If Robin Hood, and we'd be crazy. Uh, so we, we, yeah, we'd be the sher- Yeah, we'd be fighting the sheriff of automation instead of the sheriff of oh, Nottingham. Brilliant. There you go. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, so um, yeah, that's so we best get on the bow and arrow practice. Absolutely, exactly. That's right. You know, well, yeah, you would have to really because, well, yeah, unless you could get no. Well, I mean, all the all the yeah, you would you, all all the uh, all the all the all the rifles would probably be gone. You know, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't eventually, know. I mean, you'd run out of bullets eventually, wouldn't you? Um, well, yeah, this so you, could, you could always stick, have sticky bombs on arrows and stuff. I guess. I yeah, no, that's exactly right. I've, I, I always, I always find that funny when you see some of these uh, shows about. It's like The Walking Dead. Where did they get all this ammunition from? When I see The Walking Dead, they're shooting all these zombies left, right, and centre. But I'm thinking, well, where is all this ammunition? Where are they getting all this stuff from? You know, it must have all been gone like ages ago. What are they doing, making their own? It's all crazy, but uh, <laughs> but we're obviously we're living in a more much much more realistic world with your uh, with your um, scenario here. So uh, yeah, bows and arrows. Too right, bring bring it back. Um, now you managed to find an encampment um, within um, Sherwood Forest, funnily enough, um, right. and. Uh, Yes, it's a it's a very welcoming community, um, and of course, one of the um, one of the people in the camp actually recognises you as David Lloyd, um, and wants to ask you around the campfire um, a set of questions. And that and the first question of those is, what's the first comic you remember enjoying? Uh, right. Well, the first comic I remember enjoying that would go way back. Um... I think um, that would be. I mean, that's a kind of memory. I mean, I'm. I don't dwell on the my childhood memories uh, very much um, because I. Yeah, I know people who sort of like remember everything about their childhood, but I, you know, I have flashes of things. And one, th- the one comic I, I remember, or a, a comic that I remember enjoying, was something I saw that I can't even. I don't even know what it was, but it was a. Uh, I have a very sharp memory of a panel of a reprinted adventure strip showing an evil Oriental mastermind plunging to his death from a tower window. Now I don't now, you know, from what I know about comics from from you know being in the business and knowing lots of the history now, it might have been something from a character called Jungle Jim, because the hero was this sort of like blonde, you know, typical cl- cl- classic uh, hero character. And uh, but I do remember the mastermind going out of the tower window. Um, it's kind of, I don't know why that I remember that image specifically, but it was a, it was a full color strip mm. that was obviously an American reprint of some kind in in a, in a kind of collection of stories for kids, an annual, you know, like the annuals that you get at Christmas. This this had sort of Western mm-hmm. strips and stuff like that, and it and it had this 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 other story in it. Um, so that was, that, that's a thing I, I remember specifically enjoying and, and, and maybe think comics or maybe appreciate comics. But then in terms of, of, of uh, strips at the time when I was a kid, 
you know, I, my memory was of the of the newspaper we used to get through the through the door, which was like the Daily Mirror, and uh, there was a strip called Garth in that, which is a classic British newspaper strip, and I remember that. I remember that uh, the way that looked and some of those stories. But I was at that time. I was not like hooked on comics. It was not something that I was looking towards as a kind of career. Um, but uh, it was things like handicap, and and when I was started drawing and wanted to do cartoons, I was drawing things like handicap. Um, so it was that stuff that was like uh, stimulating me, and simple gag strips too, because. In those days, is like way back. Uh, the newspapers used to have these um, these sections where they would just have gag strips. You would have these, you know, these this old fashioned stuff about, you know, files in cakes, you know, and convicts with these uh, with with convict outfits on. You know, it's like really old fashioned cartoon stuff. But those were really great. They really stimulated your imagination. And there were some of the great uh, British cartoonists doing these gag strips. Um, and that was that was something that I enjoyed. And then later on, it was like Mad Magazine. Uh, when I, mm-hmm. Mad Magazine was like, became something very important to me too. Um, so there was a whole mix. But that first thing was that, that that image, that that thing, uh, you know, represented a story in pictures, and uh, maybe that was an early seed of, uh, of of what I ended up doing. I guess what's um, what I'd really like to find out is so you're saying that all of these things um, inspired you to draw when you were younger, um, mm. but what what inspired you to to pursue it as a career? Well, that was something, um, well, as a career, okay. Um, now, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a tough question because that would go back to, you know, that would be, that would be me um, finding uh, what I was really good at um, when I was working in advertising business. Um, if you want to know actually what inspired me to actually do comics, uh, seriously, that that goes back to something called Wrath of the Gods, which is a, a big 12-page spread that I that was in a, a comic called Boy's World that I saw when I was 13 years old. And, um, and that was... And this was drawn by a fantastic artist called Ronald Lambleton, and uh, and that was that was that was the the only comic strip that I'd seen to that point that was so realistic in effect that it was like a movie. I mean, the draftsmanship was fantastic, the the lighting was fantastic. It was like a movie, and it was the only thing I'd seen up to that point that had the effect on me as if it was a movie. And I'd never seen anything like that before. And uh, when I saw that, that really made me think, well, that's that's something I really want to do. If I can do that, if I can do anything like that, I'd really love to do that. So that 
that was the inspiration. And then just about around that time too, I saw Steve Ditko's work um, in Amazing Adult Fantasy. This was the this was the Marvel comic that preceded Amazing Spider-Man. Um, and the work that Steve Ditko was doing in those was so atmospheric. Um, it was mm-hmm. extraordinary. And, um, and, and those two, uh, those two were the, uh, really originated my passion to do comics. And, uh, but if you ask how I chose it as a career, uh, I think it was a kind of natural evolution because I kept doing them. Uh, from that point that I was inspired by them, I was drawing them in some form right throughout secondary school. And then when I got my first job, which was training in advertising art, in the studio I worked at, I was drawing them in the lunch hours and at home. I was drawing these massive epics that nobody ever saw because I was in, I was doing it for myself as well as some kind of practice. Um, and I was just obsessed with it. And, and it, it just dawned on me during this period that that's what I really wanted to do. And during that time in the advertising agency, um, which I was at for a number of years, I, I came, it came, I, it came into my head that I wanted to, to create my own newspaper strips. So I had a series of four Mm. ideas for newspaper strips, which I created and, uh, and tried to sell. And, uh, Mm. I didn't, I mean, I could go, it's a much longer story behind that if you want to hear it. Uh, but that, that really was the beginning of me actually seeking to do it as a career because if i if i'd sold those strip concepts to a newspaper um or a newspaper syndicate then i would have left and in fact i did but you know do you want me to go on with this story yeah please david (laughs) okay all right i had these four i had these four stories uh, one was Calgar, which was a kind of intelligent Conan story as a newspaper strip. Another one was a character called Jim Stryker, who was actually a James Bond-type character. There was another character called John Jones, who was a time traveller. He invented a time travel machine. He would have all these adventures. Um, and there was another one uh, called Lincoln Smith, which was about a a guy in the kind of uh, 17th century uh, New England who was a who who you know wandered around as a kind of savior healer encountering witch hunters and stuff like that anyway those four stories I came up with those ideas and I tried to sell them and I sent them to a European syndication agency who saw them and one of the people at the agency said oh this is fantastic and the, the the reaction was so positive that I got from this that I thought, oh, great, okay, this is what I'm going to do. So immediately, without mm-hmm. m- enough confirmation of that enthusiasm, I just said, mm-hmm. oh, okay. So I just left. I left the studio I was working at, and I I just left because mm-hmm. I, I was convinced that that's what I was going to do. 
it transpired after that that um, that obviously the guy that originally um, replied to that to that submission had been over enthusiastic, and the next letter I got was like, "Oh well, you know, keep trying or something like that." So there I was in a situation where I'd given up my job, and uh, and I just got into a world where I didn't I didn't have a job, um, and I wasn't going to be selling those comics. Uh, so uh, luckily, I was still living at home at the time, uh, but you know, I had to pay my rent, so I ended up doing part time jobs uh, for a number of years. And the thing I remember, mm. I realized from that that uh, experience was that, okay, I was good, but I wasn't good enough. And during that that period of those part-time jobs, I was trying to become a better artist, working to become a better artist, and doing... Uh, Trying all sorts of things. I did. I did birthday cards. I did all kinds of things to just earn a bit. Wow. And um, and so I was doing that stuff, and um, and then you know, sending out samples and hoping to get a break. And uh, and eventually, I did get a break after. Well, my career began in in seventy seven. So you know, it took a while. Um, my real career began in '77, but uh, but but it took a while. But um, it was a it was a it was a kind of hard road. It's uh, not financially. Yeah. I was never really um, in dire straits, but emotionally and uh, you know it, it's tough. I mean, whenever I talk to people about you know wanting to be a comic artist and any of that stuff at various events I go mm-hmm. to, I always say. You know, uh, prepare for rejection, and you know, stay tough because mm-hmm. that's the worst. Yeah. That's the worst thing about um, being in the business. I mean, it, it was at the end of the day. It was kind of easy for me to get into the business because the competition. There wasn't a lot of competition around when I began, um, mm-hmm. but but that was tough, and uh, um, so really, that's the whole. That's the whole thing. That's how I ended up doing that, uh, yeah, and actually began. Yeah, and, and from '77, it, it was all a kind of like it was great because you know once you do yeah. something, once you do some work that is uh, appreciated and and represents your ability, then you can mm-hmm. take it to any other publisher, and then you you've got a career. You've got a career that, and then everything goes on, but. You've got to you've got mm-hmm. to start with that standard of work, and then you know you, you're in a better situation. Then you 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 can do anything if you if you have that solid solid understanding of what you're doing, and it's good, and you know how to draw. At that time in 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 comics in England, it, it was okay to progress because there were enough comics around to. To, to make that progress and um, uh, it was it was easy I, I I do have to feel sorry for anybody in the business now because you know there were lots of people trying to get into the business and uh, yeah. and it's tough it is it's really tough 
Um, but uh, if you stick in long enough, then you get the opportunity to co-create something like V for Vendetta. Um, and and on that, how how exactly did that collaboration come about? Okay, well that came about because um, I was asked by by an editor that I had uh, worked with previously. Um, this is a guy called Deskin, who was uh, editor at Marvel UK for a while, and then he left. And when he left Marvel UK, um, he set up his own publishing company. And when he set that company up, he wanted to use a lot of the talent that he'd used at Marvel. And I'd done something called Night Raven for uh, Des, Um uh, mm-hmm. at Marvel UK, which was a kind of like a noir uh, masked vigilante character. And uh, when Des wanted to set up this new uh, company and a new magazine, a new anthology magazine that would reflect to a degree a lot of the uh, concepts that he'd initiated at, at Marvel, he asked me to do another masked vigilante character. And that was basically the brief. Uh, he he right. he called me and said, "I want you to do something like Night Raven." I mean, that was basically it. And uh, and the original mm. plan was me to write and draw it myself, which I was I mm-hmm. was very happy to do. But then I thought mm. to myself, "Well, I'm working with this this brain uh, called Alan Moore, and uh, I got on <laughs> well with Alan, and you know we worked well together." And I thought. Okay, so I could write it myself, but, you know, I think I should ask Alan if he wants to get on board with this, and so I did. And Alan was actually on board at Warrior at the same time because he wanted to do an upgrade of Marvel Man, this old classic superhero character. And uh, so he was doing that. He was planning to do that with uh, uh, on Warrior. So I, you know, Alan was already there and I'd worked with him very happily. And he said, yeah, sure, let's, let's get together and do this. And then so we, we ended up talking about um, what we could do with it. And, and because we were both uh, very politically aware, we liked telling stories about what could happen in society um, politically. Mm-hmm. Um, we had both created uh, concepts about a, a possibility of a, of a dictatorship in the future England. I had uh, done something called uh, Falconbridge, which is about a female urban guerrilla in a future fascist England and not been able to sell it. I mean, there's a story behind that. I don't, don't know how far you want me to go into that. But uh, <laughs> Alan also had an idea about a similar kind of character it was a, a kind called the the doll this was a kind of terrorist in in white uh, face makeup and he hadn't been able to sell that either i think he tried to sell it to thompson tc thompson which right. was not the well not not yeah. the not really the best place to uh, to to sell a um, <laughs> Maybe not. you know something <laughs> radical like that you know because uh, no, it was very funny. I, I'll, I'll divert momentarily to a story about DC Thompson from my own experience. Yeah. Where, you know, during that period where I was trying to to sell things and myself, I created a, a, a character. It was no, it was a kind of funny character 
I had this idea of a circus troupe of Dachshunds, right, who who had tricks. It was like dogs who had tricks. And and it was called Nappers Yappers. Amazing. Na- nappers, Nappers, Yappers, right, because it was a, these were dogs. I was going to call it a string of sausages, actually, but it was like, excuse me, remembering it makes me laugh. But this was this was an idea that I was trying to sell. It's a sort of like a, a basically simple story, you know, uh, you know, a circus troupe, and you know the people who run the circus troupe, and it was going to be very simple and light-hearted. But in one of the scripts I sent them, there was this, uh, you know, a ne'er-do-well character in the circus who got drunk all the time. It was just like a classic drunk, you know, who was like he was the bad guy. He was gonna you know, disrupt things. Anyway, when I sent this, one of the letters that came back from DC Thompson was, we do not have anybody who's regularly drunk in our comics. And I thought, <laughs> right. yeah, it's like, we do not have anybody who's regularly drunk in our comics, which I thought was quite understandable because, you know, it was, you know, DC Thompson, yeah. very, very puritanical Scottish publication. So Nappers Yappers, Nappers Yappers, or a string of sausages, as I planned to call it, never happened. But that was that was. But as oh, I say, Alan, Alan was Alan was trying to uh, had, had tried to sell the doll about a terrorist in white face makeup to and and of course he hadn't been able to. So, but there were these. But the basic th- the concept the thing about that was that both Alan and myself um, had this vision and uh, mm. and and on a more serious note um at the time that we created the um the right wing in england um was uh, had was was a burgeoning uh um group movement uh, yeah burgeoning yeah. movement and um and it came about at the same time as Margaret Thatcher came to power, which you know, you, we all know that when the conservatives are strong, all these other little groups um uh come to the fore. Anyway, so you know, the National Front at that time and um and of course it was just after seventy seven. It was like um you know, the punk movement. Uh, there was a lot of feeling of of, of fe- ill feeling about unemployment and stuff like that. Anyway, yeah. uh, so but we we were aware of that, and so after various discussions, we ended up with a, a story that was not just another masked vigilante crime fighter character, which it could have been, but was a masked vigilante crime fighter that said something and was relevant. And that was, it wasn't an accident. It was something we wanted to do, but, um, you know, it, it was, it came, it, it was an accident in itself uh, because if circumstances had been different, we might have ended up with just some regular kind of concept. Um, but, um you know, that's what that's a lot of people don't understand that a lot of things that happen in creativity are accidents. You know, that's yes. Uh, yeah. It, yeah, it's like things, things, 
you you don't control everything and and luckily you don't control everything because sometimes a concept mm. or an idea has its own life and its own existence uh and it's like a painting you start off with a painting you know you start off thinking oh yeah i know what i'm going to do and then as the painting as you start painting you think no 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 this this no i'll change my mind and that's yeah. well that's like creativity generally really isn't it and well what's really interesting say um i mean i i'm a writer myself comic book writer yep. um in my spare time that is um but uh reading up on just writing in general um george rr R. martin of um game of thrones fame hmm. um he describes uh creativity um creative people as either architects or gardeners and you know everybody's on the spectrum somewhere yeah um, yeah, I'd, I'd kind of almost say I'm more of an architect, and then you know I might build something, and then like stuff will grow on the wall, for instance. Um, where where would you put yourself in that oh. spectrum? Ah, oh, well, like yeah, well that's a very interesting that's a very interesting um, uh, analogy or description there. Um, yeah, arch- mm. yeah. If you don't want to just be an architect, if you're if you're just an architect, well. You just your yeah. building is going to just look, you know, pretty cold. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you know, uh, to follow through, well, you you want something to grow on it, but then I don't know. Yeah, it's a very interesting. Well, <laughs> it's a very interesting concept. An architect always refers to buildings, but a gardener is refers to something organic on the ground. So I don't know how yeah. you have anything growing on the walls. So <laughs> you're thinking widely or something, I guess. <laughs> but <laughs> I don't know. But I think. I mean, if I take that from, you know, from his point of view, uh, yeah. an architect is some, you, you've got blueprints and you build it and that's it. That's no good yeah. because there's nothing no, inside no, that. That's gonna, that. Yeah. You could build an no, extension, you know, no or you get, yeah, yeah, or you can, <laughs> what's that thing you put in your attic or no, whatever. Uh, yeah, you can, you can build like an extension. Loft conversion or something. Like yeah, that. loft conversion or put in a skylight. But I don't know. I think gardener is better. If you're a gardener, you yeah. can, yeah, you you can say, okay, so this is like it's going to look good if I, yeah. yeah. But it's a it's a very because good... he, he describes himself as a gardener actually, um, yeah. George R R Martin. But you know, somebody like Stephen King, for instance, would be more of an architect. Um, yeah, I can go. Know, yeah, I, 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 okay. I'll give you an example. Mm, okay, I don't don't think I should do this. Um, no, okay. I was going to use an example in art. We could sidestep it if you wish. No, I, I was going to use an example in art, um, but I can't be absolutely yeah. sure of this example of art, which is something that, that yeah. I think about uh, my colleagues and stuff. But I'm, I, I don't think mm. I should go there because you, you can never be absolutely one hundred percent sure of what um, no. of what your colleagues are you know what they plan but but for myself myself i yeah uh i i i i don't i think if you're doing comics i think it might be different from uh from uh prose from something that that yeah definitely and even from writer to artist within comics as well yeah, well, I, I think if you're doing comics, is because the important thing about a comic is you've got to have some kind of structure at the beginning. 
Um, you could say that about uh, fiction, uh, prose fiction as well. But the thing about a comic is that you have a set number of pages that you're planning for, and that will involve a set number of frames, a set number of panels within a within a within a page. Now that is a, a discipline. That is a, a restriction. Now that is that is not the same restriction that you would get in prose fiction at all. You know, somebody somebody wants to come. You know, you could write a five hundred page novel or a two hundred page novel. You, you do have some kind of. There's a limit there. Um, yeah, uh, it's a limit. Although Alan, Alan's Alan managed to reach a million words with Jerusalem, didn't he? <laughs> no, I don't know. I yeah. don't know. I've never not read it, so I don't know. But but the thing is, with the comic, you have pages, um, and you you need to have in your head, especially in the industry concept, how much they are liable to print for you. This is all very complicated. This is all much different to print. Print, you know, is not going to cost you an awful lot more, probably, than uh, 300 pages and 200 pages. But it's going to cost an awful lot more in comics, right? Because that, especially if you're doing it for a comics industry. So comics is different. So I would say in Mm -hmm. comics, you you have a number of pages, you have an approximate number of panels, and you can work out an idea that will fill that space. Um, If you're a writer artist, it's much easier to do that because you know what's in your head, you know when you put down, and you know the visuals that you need to put down and the visuals that you can excise because you don't need that time. It's like, I think it's more like filmmaking. It's much more like filmmaking than writing a book. No question. Mm -hmm. It's cinema. Really, because basically you're doing storyboards. So when you do mm-hmm. something like that, you are you do have a structure that is closer to architecture, I think, than than gardening, because you you yeah. you you you've got more of a restriction. Um, depend, you know, if if you're working within uh, rules, but. You know, this that that's that's a very um, complex situation of discussion that you could get into in a in a big way, um, um, too big a way, I guess, for what you're doing here. But uh, but yeah, it's, yeah, fun, I mean, it's it, fun though. I re- I really find it interesting to find out, particularly from somebody like yourself. Um, what, what, how you think of that? And it's really interesting to hear you say that you know the fact that the format of the medium of comics, you know, it's it's got its own built-in architecture already, mm. um, in a way, I mm. guess. And I guess that mm. kind of leans into my idea of you know being an architect, building the wall, and then having the garden grow on the wall, type of thing. I yeah. guess, um, yeah, in a way. Um, but. Uh, yeah, no, it's it is it's fascinating. But going back to what you were saying in terms of, you know, the fact that you know a, a two hundred page novel or a three hundred page novel, the price difference isn't going to be much. In comics, that's a whole other ball game, mm. isn't it? A um, hundred mm. pages worth of art is going <laughs> to cost a lot. It take a lot, yeah. a lot more time. Uh, well, um, uh, you know, so that obviously, yeah, that... 
Well, and, and apart from the, the the production, this is the thing. It's like you know, you might pay the artist peanuts, but you know, the those print yeah, printers I, and distribution. Yeah. Well, that's a whole different deal. But that printing and distribution, isn't um, But then that's that. That was going to lead me to Aces Weekly. So oh, right, okay. Aces Weekly this year is ten years. Yeah, isn't it? I believe. Yeah. 10 years old it will be um so how it will be yeah um yeah. later in the year is it do you, do you know do you know the, the yeah it's uh days? we began it in uh september 30th september uh oh, and so this year, year will be it will be 10 years yeah amazing yeah and so um how did that idea come about okay all right uh well, the idea of it came about because uh, I was at well, one of the San Diego conventions in um, the Artist Alley, which I hope they're going to make it bigger this year. But anyway, that's another story. Yeah. But um, Artist Alley in San Diego has been shrinking steadily for over was over a number of years because all all kinds of other things took over uh, from it. Uh, it, it, it. You know. Uh, it's moved a long, long way from its early days. But anyway, I was in Ardisali, I think it was 2011, um, and I met a guy who had, um, who was one of the, who who had created the first digital uh, graphic novel, uh, Batman, uh, Batman Digital. And um, And he was talking to me, I was talking to him about that, but what <clears throat> this wasn't relevant to the fact that he'd done a, the Batman digital novel, but <clears throat> he created his own company that was doing stuff online, comics online. And he, I, when I was speaking to him, he said, well, look, he told me this story that he'd done this, he'd done this work for a publisher, um, spent a lot of time on it. And, uh, and at some, a certain point when it was out and it sold and blah, 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 he went to the publisher and said, okay, so where's my cut, you know? And the publisher looked at him and said, <laughs> he said uh, I'm sorry, but uh, there isn't anything left. And he said, what do you mean there's nothing left? I did this. You know, this is like, said, well, with all the promotion and publicity and the printing and distribution that we had to do, there was nothing left. Now that is a kind of I'm minimizing that story. I'm <laughs> I'm 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 actually describing it in a simplified manner. But what the reason why he decided that he wanted to do something online was because all the other costs that were involved, which are massive in uh, in comics production. And have grown massive over the years since that time. Um, uh, distribution has grown, or well, since 2011, distribution costs grew through various reasons. Um, printing costs grew, everything grew, um, and even even the comic stores ceased to exist because of the greed. Of the big two in mm-hmm. in the nineties, the collector mentality that was stimulated. You know all that. That's all history that you probably know about. But anyway, the point is, yeah. all those costs are totally irrelevant to the creator and what the creator produces. The creator 
can produce something, put it on screen, costs nothing to produce it. It's a file. You put it, you put it out there and people can buy it and read it and enjoy it. There's no paper. There's no printing. There's no distribution. There's no retail. There's nothing. It goes directly from the creator to the consumer. And it was so simple a concept that I thought, yeah, he's right. And uh, when I came back from that, um, I spoke to uh, a friend of mine, uh, an ex-Marvel UK editor, a great guy called Bambos Georgiou, and uh, said, hey, why don't we do something like that? We'll do an anthology, um, you know, invite some names, uh, uh, you know, and um, have an anthology of stories. Uh, of, of And let's do that and uh, run it up the flag. Basically, it was an idea of running up the flagpole. Let's, let's do that and see what happens. And that's why we mm. decided to do it. It was easy to do, simple to do. And in fact, I thought it was going to be an absolute smash uh, because we were using people that people knew in the comics business. Um, we weren't going to charge a lot for it. They didn't have to go out to the comic store to buy it. They didn't have to do anything except switch on their computer. That was it. And uh, and it did not work as successfully as I thought it would. And um, <laughs> uh, the reason... The reason I think is because, and I'm still convinced uh, this is the reason, is because people are obsessed with paper. People want paper. And uh, it's like uh, it's like an obsession. It's like a heroin addict, you know? <laughs> I, 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 and I, I just, I, I, I have been fighting that uh, that battle for a long time, and uh, and I really believe in what we're doing. It's you know, from an economic point of view, from uh, an artistic point of view, from the point of view of promoting comics itself and helping new guys get into the business, helping people be seen when otherwise. If they tried to go to a publisher, you know, they'd be unknown, they wouldn't be seen, nobody would know them. From any point of view mm -hmm. that was artistic, cultural, uh, economic, beneficial, whatever, it's absolutely sensible and logical. But from the point of view of a comic reader who is dedicated to comics as a paper thing, it is something that they are constantly trying to avoid. And it's, 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 it's formed an enormous wall that I'm, you know, I'm still trying to bust down. I mean, we have a, we have a loyal subscriber base um, there were forms of all kinds of different people. You know, it's like, you know, I'm not talking about people who sort of like, oh, yeah, I love digital comics, you know, and I'm with you all the way. This is not the case. I, I you know, there are, it's a whole mix of different people who actually like comics. 
there's there's a kind of mindset that is like, I like comics on paper, and I will only have comics on paper, and I don't want anything else. And don't talk to me about anything else except comics on paper. And there are lots of other people <laughs> who are say, I love comics. I love the way they can tell stories. And if you can give mm-hmm. them to me at this very reasonable price, you know, and they come straight to my computer, you know, every Monday I get 20 pages for one pound and then, you know, it forms into a volume of up to 150 pages and I don't have to go out to the comic store. I just love comics. Thank <laughs> you. And there you go. But those people is, I know, it's, it's just, but they're overtaken by these swarms of people who sort of like say, no, no, when is it going to be printed? Is it going to be printed? Are you going to put it in print? <laughs> Every time I hear that, I say, no, it's not going to be in print. <laughs> you know, if you put it on print, do you know how much it costs you? Do you know how much it costs you if you put it on print? But it's not, but it doesn't, it doesn't connect. It doesn't connect. It's like, right. oh, uh, oh, that's really great. But uh, when is it going to be printed? Well, the answer is no, it's not going to be printed. Although I have to say, um, you know, you know, I did warn you I was going to ramble on a bit here. I have to say, I have to say that um, part of our agreement with all our creators, seriously, is that um, they only, with us, they only have an agreement. There's no contract involved. This is all, you know, reputation. Mm -hmm. We don't have any contracts. But every single creator, um, we only have any exclusivity to their work for two years, and that's only in English. So after two years with us, they can go off and they can get it printed. They can go somewhere else Mm -hmm. with it. So everybody is perfectly free to do that. But um, the key for me is that I hope uh, that everybody will, um, all our contributors, who are fantastic, fantastic mix of all different people, uh, will stick with us for those two years and then go off and, 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 and they do. You know, they go off and, you know, and then make their own books um, because because they uh, they are as much um, uh, they have the right to be as much in love with paper as anybody else. Um, and I I only you know I don't expect any of the kind of crazy passion that I have for the whole thing to be with the with the mm-hmm. the people who work on Aces. I I just I just want them to stick with us for that period. Totally. That's fantastic. Uh, now, uh, back to the campfire. Oh, yeah. Um, everybody's, been, everybody's been blown away uh, with your answer to, the, to that first question. I hope, <laughs> I all, these no- I hope all these notifications are not uh, causing any trouble. No, no, not at all. Oh, I can't hear them. Can't hear them. It's all good. Oh, well, that's great. Um, well, I yeah. know whether you could. You know, I get these like something in the messages. That's good. Okay, yeah. all right. You keep on getting notifications on your on your window. Now it's all good. Um, all right. But uh, yeah, the next question that crops up is: What's the funniest comic or most laugh out loud moment in the comic that you've read? Uh, 
Well, I, 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 my memory is not of any comic that I've read that makes me laugh, laugh out loud. But uh, um, uh, when I was a kid, there was this great U.S. cartoon book uh, called "How to Live with a Neurotic Dog," and um, and we had a dog. At, you know, my family had a dog. Um, I don't know whether that was really relevant because our dog wasn't particularly neurotic, but um, <laughs> it, it was. It was a very, very funny. Um, I don't even know who did that now, but everybody in my family laughed out loud at that. It was like it was like one of those cartoon books that everybody in the family could enjoy, and we all loved that book. And uh, I, I followed it up with a with another called "How to Live with a Neurotic Cat," but uh, I, I don't think I think that was a that was a poor sequel. I think from from my understanding. Um, and I don't. I, I'm sure if you Google that, you will find out. I mean, I didn't. I didn't go to the effort of doing that myself. But if you do that, uh, I think you'll find out. But it is. It was a very successful, a very successful book at the time, and um, and you know, and made you know made everybody laugh out loud. And I mean, it was one of those series of paperbacks that that were widely spread in England at the time. And it was along with the paperback uh, versions of MAD. Uh, you know that MAD did a whole collection of, uh, of reprints in paperback form. I guess you know that. Do you, do you know that? I, do, I, I didn't know that bit, no. Oh, yeah. you Actually, well, you should find out about that because I'm sure you can get them. Yeah. Uh, they were paperback collections of MAD magazines. Um, and uh, also right. included a lot of the Don Martin uh, characters from Mad Magazine. Um, there were there were paperback collections of of Don Martin, and they they were very funny too. But nothing along the lines of um, of how to live with a neurotic dog, which uh, I you know I suppose it's I suppose it's a bit like the internet now. You know, there's. You know, videos of cats and videos of dogs, funny dogs. It reaches everybody because everybody's got a dog or a cat, and I think it has that common something yeah. to do with that commonality of understanding of the dog and the family pet that 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 made that. Um, you know, they they always say that you know if you want to sell a uh, if you want a best selling book, you know, the book of cats. You know, put that on the uh, shelves at uh, at Barnes yeah, and Noble, and exactly. it's about yeah, of course. That's like it's that like that that thing, yeah, that thing. So whether that was the key to it, but no, but it was a very very funny book, How to Live with a Neurotic Dog, and I can I can say that's the only one I can remember made me laugh out loud. Brilliant. Now, changing emotions a little bit, the next question that comes up around the campfire is what's the saddest comic or most upsetting moment in a comic that you've read or created yourself? <laughs> yeah, well, um, I never, yeah, I mean, I've never read anything in comics that I found uh, sad um, myself. Um, mm -hmm. I think... I th yeah, but I, I, you know, in terms of me, my reaction to other comics, uh, I think, yeah. I think is a prop, you know, going off a bit tangentially again. Um, 
I think there's a problem in comics that they don't deal in humanity too much. I think this is a big problem with comics generally um, and the industry generally because it's there's a sort of lack of humanity in comics. It, it, it's it's very mm-hmm. too much of it is based on cardboard cutouts that don't reach a level of emotion, and they're not meant to because you know let's face it, most of comics are entertainment. You know, it's how many have you know in their history have had room to 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 produce sad stories or meaningful stories, um, you know, not many, um, unless you go to different areas of of comics or and different uh, countries even. Um, so I think that most of the artists aren't required to do that, um, and the stories don't require them to do that. And and if if the readers do respond uh, emotionally to anything, it may be because that's sometimes the only emotion that they've actually uh, been. Um, uh, what's the word? Exposed to. Exposed to. Yes, that may be the case. So I don't want to. I, I don't. I'm not. I'm not implying that an emotional response to something, uh, regular comics, is not real. It can be, and I understand it. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. there is a problem in comics. There is a lack of humanity in comics uh, generally, um, mm-hmm. and and so that's what I just want to say. But I, I am, I have. And ha- and have been um, uh, emotionally moved by the things that I've done uh, because a V for Vendetta, there are emotional moments, and if you don't invest yourself in those moments, then you're not artistically giving to them. It's like I mean. I, if you're going to transmit something that means something and is real and you believe in, you have to invest in it and you have to produce something that actually make that actually makes that real. And so uh, the moment when uh, Evie comes out of the jail and discovers that, that V has been her captor for all that time um you know making a spoiler here for anybody who hasn't read uh, v um <laughs> spoiler of that yeah that's right spoiler <laughs> Even longer, sorry. Uh, yeah <laughs> that moment is a very strong moment uh, but not the strongest the strong some of the strongest is when she's in that that jail and she doesn't know where she is or where she's ever gonna where she's ever gonna get out. And if you don't see that in when you in what you're drawing and make it absolutely real, not mm-hmm. not facile. And this and this again and this goes to what I was saying about comics. 
so much of comics and I'm, and so much of your audience and so much of people read comics as are experience of the industry's comics, of everything that's around the industry's comics. And the industry's comics are all done very quickly. They're done to deadlines and they're done fast. Yeah. Well, in a certain situation like that, an artist has no time to think. There's no time to think of a brushstroke. No time to think mm -hmm. of lighting. And I've seen that. I've seen, you know, I've seen great artists in comics uh, produce stuff that is supposed to mean something but doesn't because they're not, they haven't the time to think. If you're creating art that is supposed to make an impression and it's a supposed to produce an emotion, you must think. You can't do it in two hours because you've got to leave your drawing board for, for lunch. That's, mm -hmm. uh, it, it's, you know, we're creating worlds and emotions and life. And if we are really doing it seriously, and V for Vendetta was a serious story, you know, we're not oh, yes. talking about superheroes getting together for dinner here. No. We're talking about real, really important things. Um, if you're doing that, then think. You've got to think. And if you think, you create, and you do something that actually does make you feel. And, and uh you know, those moments in the jail with Evie and, and, and specifically that time when she comes out and she has the asthma attack and, mm -hmm. and V has to comfort her. She is destroyed. She's, that is something you have to make that real. And, um, uh, you know, that makes that. When you're doing that, you are telling the story, and you are telling it, and you're making it real. And uh, and and in in terms of the movie, um, just to say something about the movie, uh, in the movie they did a really good job of capturing that emotion um, mm -hmm. when you know when Evie is overcome. They did a great job there, and uh, when I saw that, you know, I think that's that, that's when I saw that in a movie. I thought, yeah, okay, they really they did a good job there. You know, everything else, mm -hmm. you know, they 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 made a great movie with uh, with that. Uh, but when when they when they recreated that moment of uh, of of pain and emotion and they did it well you know i knew when i was at the preview when i saw it for the first time with everybody i knew yeah those guys those guys were there those guys knew exactly they understood the story yeah, yeah they understood the story and they understood the feelings about it and the emotions of it and um and you know they did a great job with that, but it's you, you know art is about you know, and this is the this is one of the sad things about comics generally, 
It's not been allowed to tell stories. I mean, I've seen, I'm a big fan of Gene Carlin. Gene Carlin was a fabulous artist. You know, I met him once in New York Comic Con, briefly. Um, right. I love that guy's work. Not specifically with all the Tomb of Dracula stuff, which was brilliant. Oh, you know, Daredevil, he did fantastic stuff on Daredevil. All good, all great, all fine, full of action, wonderful, great drama. But the stuff he did in um, the Warren magazines, uh, eerie and creepy, those in the early, early 60s, I don't know whether you know about those, Sam, but, you know. No, I don't know. No, <laughs> okay. Well, check them out, man, because that's brilliant stuff. Yeah. Um the stuff he did there, he did these short stories. Uh, Eerie and Creepy were sort of like, okay, they were horror comics, right? Anthology comics of various horror stories, but written by Archie Goodwin, you know, great, great writer of comics. Um, mm -hmm. But some of those stories that Gene Carlin did, he, he drew them in wash, in um, ink wash, and the humanity and those the the what he captured in those was like something he would not be able to do would was not could not do to his best in the industry of what he was doing and and he was never given you know the scripts he was nobody gave him scripts that it was going to like about you know emotional things or meaningful things or this is this is one of the problems with the whole comics business. Uh, not comics generally, of course. Comics exist in these two different worlds: the the industry and the things that offshoot from it, which cover a lot of the independent comic uh, companies. You know, the Dark Horses and all those other things. And then there's you know the the other bunch. You know, all the sort of indies and all kinds of stuff, and they do all kinds of weird stuff that that does have relevance and feeling and depth. But if you're in the industry and you're making a living at it, you don't get a chance to express yourself, not in the way that you can express yourself. And uh, and as I say, Gene Carlin did in these things these these. Um, these great stories. And I'll give you another example of this. This is not about Gene Carlin. Excuse me for going on rambling, but if you don't mind, it's okay. Um, <laughs> right. do, David. Please do. <laughs> okay, all right. Gray Morrow. Gray Morrow, another one of the great American comic artists. He mm -hmm. also did work for the Warren magazines in something called Blazing Combat. Now, Blazing Combat was an anthology, an A4-sized black-and-white magazine that was about was war stories. But none of these war stories were like, oh, you know, gung-ho, take that, Fritz. Not that sort of stuff that you get in commando and war picture library that you used to get in England. Well, probably mm. still get in England. Um, but, you know, this was stuff in the mid-'60s Anti-Vietnam. There were stories about that were anti-Vietnam. And all those stories in these anthology magazines were anti-war. Um, they did not celebrate war. They told real stories about war. 
They told stories about the American Civil War. They told stories about um, uh, Greek War, about all kinds. One of the stories was about uh, uh, Japanese War, a war against the Japanese in the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And it's called The Long View. And uh, I will, I, I've got the pages of that. I will send them to you so you see this stuff. This was this was um, this was a great little story about Longview, called the Longview. It was about uh, how people who uh, run a war take the long view of war. If mm-hmm. casualties have to be suffered, they will be suffered because that's the long view. That's what we have to take in order to win a war. That still goes on right now. But this story was about uh, a a squadron commander who had lost all his troops because of that long view. Gray Morrow, who spent his entire career doing stuff that had a very small amount of humanity involved in what he was in the story he was telling and i say this with all due respect to gray because he was great but it's because your opportunities in that in the industry you don't have the opportunity to reveal what you can do as an artist and in that story he did and he could and it's a classic and i mean i posted it on my uh, profile a while back um anyway as i say i'll send you the pages but it's this is it's really important for 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 art for transmission for telling a story you have got to you have got to produce those feelings and emotions in the best way you can as an artist and if you can't do it you're not an artist you're just you're just uh, uh, somebody who, who has not learned how to tell the story properly. You're just doing it mm-hmm. the best way you can, but you're not doing the job. It's like a filmmaker. It's like a director, you know, who's like he gets a script and he and he and he gets actors and it turns out to be crap. It might be the best script in the world. But he can't do it because, you know, either he doesn't care or is he no good. Or he has to do it too fast because he hasn't given time yeah. to yeah. rehearse his actors yeah. or or to get the cameraman. Yeah. You know, that's the thing. It's it's That's the key. You have great artists who have not got the time. and uh, And that, I think, for me... As a sort of like my view, overview of comics generally, that is destroyed uh, what comics could be. And, the, and one of the reasons why people think comics are crap, you know, the general public, especially the cultural, the culturally aware of the public, think comics are crap because they, the people, the artists, some of the great artists and creators within them, just don't get the chance to shine 
because they don't have the time to chance to, to shine because they're just yeah. working for the industry and they don't have the time and uh, that's it's a tragedy you know uh, it's a tragedy for the medium because the medium is fantastic you can you can do anything in the medium I can tell any story in in in, in, in any way and make it great and interesting and fantastic and and meet all the cultural requirements for what they may see as the best. But the people in the industry, however great they are, just don't get the time to do it. And uh, and that's the key. And that's why there's not enough. Come back to the, <laughs> the original thing we started out with, <laughs> why there is not enough emotion that I could respond to in uh, in other comics, apart from, you know, what I've just pointed to by accident, which is uh, Gray Morrow's uh, uh, work and uh, other people's. So there you go. Yeah, voila. Yeah, no. Um, allowing things to percolate is, is very important, isn't it, in creativity? And, uh, I mean, hopefully um, in the coming years maybe – with independent um, publishers and things like that, perhaps that will become more commonplace and uh, we'll see a revival of, uh, <laughs> of heart, um, heart-touching moments. Mm, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, you never know. <laughs> no, it, 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 you know, you, you, have to, you have to think twice about the industry, you know. Uh, but, I, you know, yeah. I don't want yeah. to stretch this, uh, this, this thread too much, really. <laughs> <laughs> Fair play. Um, well, uh, with that in mind, heading on to the next question, and that is, what's the scariest comic that you've read? Uh, well, the sc- I don't. Yeah, well, I don't have. A, I, th- it, th- that would only go back to when I was a kid. When I was, uh, I saw this uh, this kind of crazy, weird space adventure thing about um, a man eating blob from space. Which, uh, which I, mm. which I, I'm, I think was by Basil Wolverton. Basil Wolverton had this very strange, weird-looking style, and uh, in fact, I'm certain it must have been Basil Wolverton. Um, he, the way he drew things was weird, so he was very good at you know anything that he drew looked kind of weird, and um, yeah, and it was this was like it was in it was a, a short story. Um, that I saw in an English anthology uh, magazine called Mystic um, or Spillbound. It was either one of those two. Um, In England, uh, you had, um, well, I don't know whether they still produce them, but uh, uh, as a company called Alan Class that would produce uh, anthologies of, um uh old american uh horror stories or mystery stories in in black and white uh that they licensed and over decades they started reprinting in black and white uh, marvel stories uh, fantastic four and stuff like that but that was one strain of these anthology they were coming out every month 
uh, creepy tales, unknown stories. Um, right. And there was a whole mix of them. Um, but that was one strand of 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 this of of those reprints um, published by a company called Alan Class. But there was another company that produced um, another series of of similar um, stories. Uh, one of them was called Spellbound, and another one was called Mystic. And they would come out monthly, but they would feature all the weirdest, craziest, most horrific stories. Not, you know, the young class ones were kind of like, I don't know, they were like Disney. They were more Disney than than Tarantino, if you know what I mean. Um, and yeah, Spellbound yeah. and Spellbound and Mystic had all the kind of the creepy. I don't know whether they were pre-code. Some of them might have been pre-code. Uh, the Hollywood. Sort of Hollywood, um, the comic code, mm. the um, yes, yeah, the the comic code that came in the fifties. Uh, the Alan Class stories that they reprinted were usually <clears throat> usually post comic code. Some of the stories that that were in Mystic and Spellbound, I'm kind of convinced were pre comic code. I don't know, but they always had the really weird, you know, the more horrific, you know, the zombies from the grave type stuff, yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, from like yeah. HC or brain knots from a of Venus, as I said. To you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't even know where that came from. You you told me about that one, but I it that that book you told me about that was a Babel, Basil Walton collection. Yeah, uh, that might have that that blob story in it. I don't know if it does. Fine, but I, I don't know where it does. But um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, anyway, that was the only thing because I but I was very, I was kid then, and I. Uh, you know, yeah, I, of course, and it's all yeah, very I'm, real when you're a kid. Yeah, like my, I mean, my yeah. daughter really takes takes fiction to heart. Um, like either way, like whether it's really happy or really sad, right. the emotions are very real, <laughs> exceedingly real. Right, um, just for, <laughs> but um, yeah, no, just when you are a kid, it is also very real. Um, yeah, and it's, it's obviously even more powerful when those emotions feel real when you're when you're. And, and adults say, so, yeah. Um, I, but yeah. as I say, I and I, I, I'd like to be. Although I would, um, okay. Even as an adult, I'd like to think of something that was very, because because comics should be able to do everything. But I think the problem yeah. with comics in in being scary is that you can leave them a moment mm-hmm. in a moment. This is the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't leave it's them. Difficult to build up tension, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's it's not about tension. It's about horror. It's about it's mm-hmm. about terror and horror. Terror and horror is a moment. It has to be a moment. Uh, suspense, yeah. tension, that sort of thing. But to, you see, um, if you tell a horror story, the horror story works best. Terror horror story and terror story work best in the cinema because you can't go. You you know people next to you. You can't. You know you're stuck there. Um, and but they also work on TV to a degree because you, the action has got you. You are you you are you are you are captured by the action, and you know depending on the director and the photography and whatever, they've either got you or they haven't. Um, but they have that ability. They have those. They have 
they can they can grab you. In in comics, you can leave too easily. It's a panel thing. You can leave far too easily, and there's nothing to grab you. There's no there's no uh, clasps, you know, to mm-hmm. to, to hang yeah. on to you. So the only thing you can really do in a situation like that, I think, unless you are, but then again, it depends on how impressionable you are and how much stuff you've seen. I mean, you know, we all get inured to to horrific imagery or or whatever. The only thing you can do is to give them an image that is horrible, an image that is that is horrible, not particularly a moment, an image that is horrible. You can do that. That that can do. You can do that with a flip. You know, this is a great thing about comics or or the click in 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 digital. You know, the flip over. You know, you flip over and then you see what that is that you're supposed to see. That you can do in comics really easily. That's but that's and that's a very specific thing. It's a bit like the sudden cut in a in a horror movie. Um but uh, you need that. You can do that in comics to a degree, but that's about the only thing you can do. The only other thing that is close to that that I've experienced that is not about scary, is all about a bit grisly and horrible and over the limit. And that's, uh, are you familiar with, there was a whole line of horror comics in, it would have been the, would have been the 70s, um, called the Skywald. Have you ever heard of the Skywald line oh, of comics? No, no, Skywald. Okay, uh, I'll spell it for you. It's S K Y W A L D, and you should Google them because I'm sure it'll all come up. But Skywald was a line of horror comics, um, and they used to have uh, their tagline was horror mood, horror dash mood comics. And they would feature some of the most grisly stuff about psycho killers on the road uh, with knives, you know, hitchhikers with knives who would be picked up and they would kill the drivers. You know, you know, you can see what I'm I'm talking about here. These are, you know, it was that kind of stuff. This was like unmitigated psychopaths. You know, with nothing, no kind of like, what can I say, uh, lightness or storytelling subtlety or subtext available who were like really kind of horrible characters. And they would have a whole line of, um, of these, of these, uh, of these stories. And I found those disturbing. Um, and uh, although I did try to submit uh, some uh, some uh, artwork to them because I thought it might be a uh, a way of, um, of getting some work, this was this was before my career began, uh, effectively. But those, right. Right. but that was a very interesting line of comics, you know. And and some of the artists in them were some really great Spanish artists and stuff. But it was really grisly. It was like, it was like uh, you're, you know, you the, the most evil subconscious churnings in your head that uh, that uh, that was um, that, that drove that stuff. But you you should check it out because uh, 
you know, yeah, you'll yeah, see. I'm just looking at it right now a little bit. Ah, right, okay. It's, 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 yeah, it's pretty horrendous. Mm, it is. <laughs> Very. That's really good. Yeah, no, that's that's um, that's a great one. I'll I'll add that to the read list, David. Um, <laughs> well, uh, yeah, yeah, maybe maybe you shouldn't, but uh, you know, I know what you mean. I'll pick up one at least. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, the one the one thing that comics is obviously really good at uh, are covers, of course, mm. um, and that's that's really. I mean, you know, you do really remember comics from a from a cover. You don't necessarily remember a book by a cover. And although mm. there are obviously memorable uh, novel covers, but it's not the biggest thing that stands out. But for comics, it definitely is. Um, and there, there are a tremendous amount of covers out there. Um, but uh, do, do you have any favourites yourself? Well, the only one uh, that I can uh, that I can remember as making a big impression on me was the, the Spider-Man, uh, Molten Man cover, the first one, because that was... Uh, when I saw that, I thought this was it was quite revolutionary. I mean, at that time, I was yeah. when I collected those Marvel comics in the early in the early sixties. Um, you had to go from uh, newsagent to newsagent because there was no equal distribution of of American comics at the time, and if you wanted to follow um, a character or or a line of action or narrative, you had to go from one newsagent to the other to find, you know, issue four of Fantastic Four or whatever. You had to go from place to place to see if, if they had them in the job lot of comics that they were given. And I remember seeing the Spider-Man Molten Man cover on a stand and thinking, man, that's really great because – the Molten Man, it was Spider-Man that stood out. And Molten Man, because he was like, it, it was dark, it was black, uh, except for the shine of Molten Man. That was a, and I, I'd never seen a cover that, that was so, because it was obviously a, a design concept. And the design concept was going to be the, 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 the draw. Um, but then when you consider the fact that most, Marvel covers at the time were like full of like color and you know the great design because it was Jack Kirby and Ditko and all those and they were they were great designs but they had lots of color but this one this one uh uh cover had was like almost entirely black um except for this and I I when I saw that I thought man that's really it was like there was the design thing going on there a kind of uh mm. Uh, a real um, uh, imperative of art there that that you didn't expect, and uh, and in fact, I think at that time Stan Lee, Stan Lee was actually using the tag pop art. He was like he was saying Marvel comics were pop art comics or pop art product because he had tied Stan Lee had tied into that whole thing that was going on with Liechtenstein. And his, uh, you know, wham, and uh, and the comics have become pop art because Liechtenstein had, had stolen, as we know, um, comic mm. art uh, to make a, a, a fine art statement with it. Uh, but you know, 
Stan, Stan Lee just like grabbed that and said, "Oh yeah, that sounds like a great idea," and started calling 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 them Marvel pop art uh, comics, <laughs> which was fantastic. Because he, he, yeah, yeah, but he knew he, he you know Stanley was really great at that. He you know he knew his audience, and he got a college audience. You know that the previous had not been around. You know, college kids were just had lost comics. You know, but then when he started doing all the sort of like the uh, human relationships, when he started, you know, when when him and Jack and Steve Ditko started doing hmm. making them real, you know, like like real people, not just these very cardboard cut out. Um, Superman characters that DC was dealing with, um, mm-hmm. you know, they were real human beings with frailty and stuff like that. And he he clued into that, you know, the need, you know, and the, that was a whole that was a revolution in lots of ways. The sixties, you know, uh, let's face it, it was like it was like an explosion of understanding the cultural input into people's. Uh, into people's psyches that had never happened before. And, uh, and you know, he was part of that. Stan Lee was part of that. And, and that, but that, but that, uh, that cover really said to me, oh, this is, you know, it was like, art. Oh, it's design. It doesn't, yeah, it really it, doesn't. It yeah, it's not, you know, and it's like, and it was revolutionary. I mean, I'd never seen anything like that. Yeah. And so it yeah, it like, really does stand out for, for for anybody that doesn't know the cover. So it's number twenty eight of uh, Amazing Spider Man. Mm. Um, I've, I've I've literally just just managed to find it because I wasn't sure which one that you meant because there's a few uh, Molten Man Spider Man covers. Mm. Um, in future ones, it was you know always Molten Man and Spider Man fighting. There's like one on a train. There's like one on a crane, things like that. But yeah, this one in particular which is the first one that you're talking about here. And it really is designed because obviously, yeah, you've got Spider-Man and they're in the dark and you've got the glow of Molten Man. But with Spider-Man, um, for instance, his leg, his thigh bone is going across the shin bone of Molten Man, who's in the background yeah. and Spider-Man is in the foreground. Yeah. And it kind of, they've just cut it. And that that's like real design stuff, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And to have that on a on a Spider-Man comic in the 60s was was quite revolutionary and it obviously made an impact on yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's amazing. So cool. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it is amazing that that one in particular did make an impression on yourself and you, it, it feels like you can remember it like it was yesterday. Yeah, well, you know, when you ask, when you, when you get asked a question about it, you, you know, you think about it. Um, um yeah but i mean i mean that that because that was the first thing that actually made a a, a a major impression on me uh about covers but god i mean if you ask me about covers generally i mean well i mean uh the covers that are the most fantastic are the ones that frank frazetta did for um the Warren magazines, um, eerie and creepy, which have been featured in Frank Frazetta collections of art, but those were just unbelievable. I mean, 
if you're not, well, again, this is something you've got to Google. You've got to actually see the covers of Eerie and Creepy. And this is this is also mm-hmm. mid mid 60s. And also Frank Frazetta did the, all the, the the all the covers for Blazing Combat. Uh, uh, Jim Warren gave Frank Frazetta uh, cover commissions uh, that are absolutely astounding. And mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> you have to. Well, if you haven't seen them before, you've got to see them all because they are just astounding. Um, and uh, they're without without um, question um, the most mm-hmm. important um, covers of comics anywhere um, from an artistic viewpoint, whether, you know, whatever your, your standards are. Um, uh, well, I, I I can't say much more than that. It's a uh, no, because I mean, if you do Google it, which I've just done now, thanks for the recommendation, David. Um, there's there's one in particular, so creepy number fifteen, um, and it looks like it's kind of it's like four kind of Neanderthal cavemen like oh, running yeah. towards the reader. Yeah, you remember that one. Yeah, of um, course. They're, they're all carrying clubs. I mean, that is incredible. Yeah, but that's 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 yeah, but that's a, that's the that's one of the less uh, powerful ones. I mean, you go back to oh, right, yeah. three of them. that just oh. stood out to me. Um, I just oh really, my god, I just really like that one. There's, oh yeah, but one, the... obviously with a with a lichen and a Dracula and a vampire fighting. Oh yeah, like, the, the Dracula and the Dracula like, and Wolfman. Um, Oh man, it's just incredible! Yeah. And this uh, blazing combat—you want to see the blazing combat ones? The uh, uh, oh, it, it's all just fabulous stuff, man! Just it is, like it is, it really is fabulous. Yeah, right there you go. <laughs> Excellent. Right back to the campfire, David. Um, we we started to 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 head into the to the last half of the uh, of the questions now. Is and, it? Is uh, it? Is it any brandy? Is... <laughs> Is there any brandy no, being David. passed around at the campfire? <laughs> so, so Eddie, Eddie, what's over being handed around? Brandy. I was saying it was any brandy. You know, brandy. Plenty of brandy. There's still, there's still alcohol. That lasts forever. So no, we're all good. Always. There's brandy. There's whiskey. There's all sorts going around. Oh, right. Okay. You know, getting I'm, these up. Okay. Great. <laughs> I'm just trying to paint the picture, you know. It's, it's okay. A hundred percent. I love it. Love it. Um, what's the most meaningful comic to you? Uh, the most meaningful comic is um, is not particularly a comic. It, 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 it's you know, if we use comic as a generic term for a strip yeah. uh, story, then mm-hmm. um, it has to be uh, the thing that most inspired me um, above all. Which was uh, this um, this full color double page spread um, that I saw when I was thirteen um, in a comic called Boys World, which had some mm-hmm. other fabulous art in it too, but nothing on the level of this uh, double spread center spread. Uh, Wrath of the Gods, which was a story about Greek mythology 
it was it featured all kinds of characters that were in in Greek mythology, which I was into big time at the time. You know, mm-hmm. for for whatever you know, because kids would always be norm normally interested in that. You know, it's got monsters, it's got you know. The Gorgon, it's got Atlas, it's got Cerberus, it's got all that sort of stuff. And the stuff that, that you know, any kid likes. Um, but uh, this was incredible. It had all those characters uh, in a mix about a character called Orion who goes on this vengeance mission. Um, and it was the most realistic uh, most realistically drawn uh, comic strip I'd seen ever. The draftsmanship mm-hmm. was superb. The atmosphere was fantastic. Uh, the the lighting was brilliant. The color was brilliant. And uh, it, the effect it had on me was like a movie. Uh, it was like um, I. It was the it was the only comic strip I'd seen at that point that that gave me the feeling it was like a movie. It was as realistic as a movie. Um, with everything that was done with it, uh, the choreography of the characters, the settings, everything, and uh, and when I saw that, I, I, it just planted that seed in me that man, I should, I should really do something. I if I could do something like this, it'd be great. And then, um, so if I if I wanted, you know, if I if it was a comic, you know, I that would. That would um, that would be the thing that I would mm-hmm. that is the most meaningful, um, uh, drawn by this incredible artist called Ronald Lambleton. And interestingly enough, uh, Ronald Lambleton at a later stage said that he he wasn't as satisfied with it as uh, a lot of his other work because he thought it was too dark. Mm-hmm. And it's it was right. it was very interesting to me when I saw that because the fact is that that was the darkness that he could have gone for and should have gone for for so many other of his things, but I, I, I I've seen lots of Ronald Edwards' work uh, before that, no, not before that, it's after that, that was the first thing I'd seen of Ronald Edwards, but the work he did afterwards he didn't use blacks. He didn't use inks. This was done with inks, with black ink and inks, and that was it, coloured inks. He did coloured inks on Wrath of the Gods. I don't think, I don't know what he used with the other thing. I think he used watercolours on some of the other work that he did, but it was soft. Mm -hmm. It had action. Yeah. He did something called Wolf the Briton in another uh, Mm -hmm. British comic, but it was soft. It was. It Do you reckon action. that you got some feedback from an editor or something that really, like, that really knocked his confidence or something? I don't. I don't. <laughs> I don't. I doubt very much. He didn't need. I, oh. I don't think he needed that. I think. I think. I don't know what. I don't. I don't. I don't know whether that put him off because he, he said that personally. Yeah. It wasn't the editor. Right, okay. He said that personally. I uh, think it was because maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I. I would have. I I spoke to Ron Lambleton, um a few times after that because I became um, when I got into my career I became uh, a chairman of something called the Society of Strip Illustration at which in which uh, Ron Lambleton was one of the members and I spoke to him I never get got to 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 meet him 
But if I'd got to meet him and I'd spoken to him on a wider basis, I would have asked him, hey, you know, Ron, what was the problem there? Why did you not like that? (laughs) But maybe it was something about his character because he, I mean, he'd made a lot of pictures of nice people. I mean, he he did a whole series of drawings that I think it were made into plates or uh, pictures that you could buy as kind of like um, prints. And they were about um, urchins, you know, like street urchins in Victorian times? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And, and, but they were nice. They were kind of like nice. It was like Disney-fied. Disney-fied mm. kind of nice characters that you might like to have on a plate, on a print. Not that reflected the reality of Victorian urchins, but were, like, nice. And a lot of his other artwork I found nice. It was, it was, it was dramatic, but it was nice, and it didn't have that guts. It didn't have that core of, of the possibility of real death and uh and 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 maybe it was something about him you know he uh he he i don't know i don't know but there was there was some reason why uh wrath of the gods which is the most powerful thing he's ever done you know i'm 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 convinced of it um i mean uh, there must have been a reason why he didn't. Like, but that is, for me, that is the most influential thing. And just something else on Ronald Ambleton too. He, like a lot of British artists, a lot of British comic artists, nobody knows shit about them in the rest of the world. And it's like, okay, Frank Bellamy. Okay. I mean, how many, who many, how many people know or care about Frank Bellamy outside of England? Like nobody. Frank Hampson created Dan Dare. You know, look at that fantastic work that he did on Dan Dare. You know, he was doing what Alex Raymond did. You know, models, shit like that, all kinds. Everybody knows about Alex Raymond. Frank Hampson? No. These guys, we we have we have this fabulous treasure trove of artists who produce fantastic work. Nobody knows shit about them um, in lots of other places, and it's it's. It's crazy that that is a fact. I mean, especially Bellamy. Bellamy is an absolute genius, but nobody, nobody knows. Really, nobody knows. But um, and kind of on that on that note, we can probably move on to the next question. Ah, right, you're short of time now. What's the most (laughs) underrated comic? Right, I I was just trying to use the segue. Right, okay. Of uh, you know people being people being underrated and uh, yeah, right under the radar. Oh my god, yeah, um, yeah. So, what's the most underrated comment? Ah, uh, well, I can't. You see, I answered that question. I answered that question very good. You know, honestly, because I there were too many underrated artists around, um, yeah. and and also because. I am not. Uh, I don't keep up uh, enough. Um, 
with what's happening now. I mean, there's there might be a genius mm-hmm. somewhere that I don't even know of. So I I I cannot possibly uh, answer that. I I just think that the field of comics is um, is too dominated um, in the media and amongst the people who who are comic lovers and comic readers that a lot of people go under the radar, you know, just because by default, because they people don't see them. I mean, if you're not, I mean, the comics business, and this is the comics business has taken over the readership of comics. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think I, this is not, you know, uh, this is a very big subject. I don't know how far we can go into it, but comics readership mm-hmm. is totally fragmented throughout the world. Um, in Japan, it's completely different. In Spain, it's completely yes. different. In Italy, it's completely different. In France, it's completely different. France has a completely mm-hmm. different personality in, in BD, in comics. Japanese, Japan has a completely different personality. America has a completely different personality. And in England, we have a completely different personality, although our personality has been uh, actually kind of almost subsumed by the American industry because so many mm-hmm. of the British talent went to America and, and, and left the British industry, which if the British industry had had sense enough to hang on to those people by giving them money, we could have built a British industry here that would have rivaled America. That didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a whole different story. But what happened was... That all, <laughs> Perhaps we could build the, it today. <laughs> hey, well, yeah, you don't want me going to that. You don't want me going to that. But all of those, all of the British people went off and worked for America and the sure. British publishers shrank into nothingness. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's another story. But the point is that um, on, on, the, on the subject of underrated comics, there's just too much stuff around. Too much stuff is 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 focused in one particular area, and because of that, there are lots of people. Even if I did know what was going on in the industry, which dominates most of the product that you can get in the comic stores, there would be lots of people outside that I wouldn't know. So I don't even want to go into that because there are lots of great people um, out there, mm-hmm. and they're trying to make uh, their mark on a hopelessly inadequate publishing uh, landscape. And that's, again, that's another reason why I do Aces Weekly, uh, to refer back to uh, what I'm doing. Yeah, 100%. That's fantastic, David. And, um, yeah, no, uh, a, good, a good point well made. Um, that, uh, yeah, no, there are so many creators out there <laughs> that, yep. that are, you know there are absolutely brilliant but um unable to get published and and gain an audience although i mean i don't know what your thoughts are on um the likes of, of kickstarter and indiegogo and things like that and, and and people making a real go of um creating their own readerships through yeah but through not, okay yeah but why should they have to do that why why yeah. why 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 should they have to do that? Why why should they have to go and do that? 
Mm-hmm. And you know how much work there is involved in yeah. that shit? I mean, you know. Oh, yeah, and then I, I did. Go, they, <laughs> I well, several I, myself. It's, okay, it's well, laborious. <laughs> well, there you go. But that's it's insane. You know, why you have to it do is. that because you've got to pay printers, you've got to pay, you've got to get uh, privileges all and uh, all that sort of shit. Yeah. Then you've got, to, you've got to post it. You've got to... This yeah, is uh, to- itself. Well, it's, it's totally and absolutely unnecessary. You can just put it on screen, man. Put it on screen. Yeah. And it looks brilliant. Yeah. You don't have any printing trouble. I mean, I, I, okay, I'm not going to name names here, but I spoke to somebody whose work was in Aces Weekly and yeah. they got it printed and the printer f-ed up. Now, oh. it was in Aces Weekly and they, they, and they got it printed and the printer f-ed up. You cannot f-ed up on a computer screen. It, it is, uh, a computer screen looks fabulous. You, you, it looks brilliant. It's brilliant. It looks fabulous. I mean, you, you see a work of art on the computer screen. It looks fantastic. You know, I mean, I mean, you know, it look, if you go to the National Gallery, it doesn't look as good. I mean, I, I just, for God's sake, I mean, you know, give the computer its due. It's technology. Yeah. It's the 21st century. It will give you the most fabulous reproduction of fabulous things. And what the hell are you putting your trust in some printer uh, that you don't know anywhere? And you, they won't give you – you can't get a proof that's worth a damn. And you're working your bollocks off to do a Kickstarter or all this. Just please go to the computer because it's there for you. It will reach everybody as long as you want to – Put your faith in them and not keep giving paper-loving heroin addicts, you know, their endless, endless kick. I must have paper. I like the smell of it. I like the smell of it. (laughs) I love it. That is brilliant. Um, Yeah, so... uh... I'm sorry. I, I do. Get, I, I do get very really checked out. Aces. That, I, I tell you what. That should that should be like a, a an advert for uh, Aces Weekly. You know, like a radio advert. Or something. Yeah, but I'd have, to, I'd have to take out all the swear words, wouldn't I? Well, we can ble- we can bleep it. It's fine. It's all right. Oh yeah. Uh, now <laughs> we're we're coming to um, the end here. Um, penultimate question. In regards to comics, and that's mm. what comic would you recommend to a friend who's never read comics? Ah, oh, right. Well, you know, um, that would depend on uh, the age and uh, what you know, the age of person and and what they particularly like to subject. So it's very difficult to recommend uh, a a one particular thing to everybody. Um, uh-huh. The one the one thing I I often sort of like suggest to people who you know who who have no, you know, just as a sort of like a sampler of what can be done as a great story in comics, in sequential mm-hmm. storytelling, is this terrific uh, story, which is not a comic, a regular comic or a strip because it's not on a page separated in the panels. It's one panel per page in a wonderful book um, uh, called Tantrum which is by uh, the great cartoonist Jules Pfeiffer. And that is an absolute classic. It's, um, 
it, it is a comic strip because you know it uses balloons. Um, it, as I say, it's one panel per page, effectively. It's a great book. It's about mm. well, you know, I I don't want to kill the story too much, but it's about a, a tired businessman who is really weighed down by the responsibility of his of his life. And at a certain point, he just gets sick of everything, and he dis- he just really yearns, yearns desperately, not to have all this responsibility on his shoulders anymore, and wants to become like a kid because then a kid, everybody looks after you, and uh, you don't have all that responsibility. And I'm tired, and I'm tired, and I don't want it anymore. <laughs> and he he yearns for it so much and for so long that it happens, and um, and I won't say any more about it. I won't say any more about it. It's absolute crisis. Oh, it's brilliant. And um and uh I think you can I, I think I looked on Amazon, I think is you can get it there's a hardback edition yeah. edition. It is an absolute classic and a beautiful piece of work. And also a minimalist. It's extraordinarily minimalist. Um mm-hmm. um which is often some of the best of of of, of uh, comic storytelling anyway because it has the energy i mean we we can't get in, get into that but energy is often lost by overdoing uh uh art and mm-hmm. you know lots of comic art is overdone to the nth degree and has lost all the energy becomes a kind of plastic stainless steel thing that um that is just stuck there and has lost a lot of energy um, and needs to be enhanced by, you know, overcoloring and stuff like that. But I don't want to go there. But the point is, you know, uh, the maximum energy is often uh, um, manifested in minimalism, mm-hmm. and, uh, and uh, certainly uh, uh, tantrum is another is a good example of that. <clears throat> Excellent. Excellent. Now we've come on to our last question in regards to comics, and that is if you could only take one comic into the apocalypse, which would it be? Uh, that would be uh, the collected Crazy Cat. Uh, you know, the um, Harriman uh, um, uh, strip. Because that's Harriman, just, yeah, because yeah, that's just incredible. Um, amazing stuff. I mean, it's just. Um, it's got a kind of hope, you know, fatalistic irony to it, you know. But it's funny because because mm. things keep happening, you know. The same thing happens practically all the time, and it's what you expect to happen. Um, but it, even though it's what you expect to happen, it happens with humour. It's a bit like it's a bit like a cartoon, um, Roadrunner, you know, Coyote. Mm. You know, it's like it's like. You know, it, you know it's going to happen, but it's always funny. Um, you know, it, it doesn't depend on what happens; it depends on 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 what's happening um, and how it happens. And uh, and it's just, you know, amongst all the things that would just like, you know, keep you kind of uh, give you laughs, but always make you realise that fate was like liable not to be avoided or that you know you were you couldn't guarantee on anything um but you know you might have a hope that things would work out uh better 
then they might. Um, I don't know, but that that would be, I think, collective crazy cat. An apocalypse. The what? <laughs> well, yeah, you definitely need that in an apocalypse, right? Hopefully well, yeah, it's going to be all right in the end. <laughs> well, well, yeah, I guess so. But I, yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know. Yes, it comes back to the old. Uh, term- it's a Terminator thing, isn't it? This you, you're talking about the old Terminator thing. You know, we all have to hope for the best. Yeah, hundred percent. Mm. Right. And then along with the uh, full collection of Crazy Cat, um, what, what weapon, tool, or useful item would you like to take with you as well? Um, hmm. Well, weapon, tool, or useful item? I, I mean, I'm not... Use, weapon, tool, or useful item? Weapon, tool, or useful item? I... Uh, I can't think of anything that would like be multifunctional enough mm-hmm. to survive with, except um, yeah. uh, I guess uh, a Swiss Army knife, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be Swiss Army knife? Yeah, for sure. Why yeah, not? I mean, you know, that's it. I mean, <laughs> well, that's. I mean, I can't think. You know, you need a can opener, and you need a, you need a, and you might need a knife, or uh, and you might need and a magnifying glass, and <laughs> yeah, and you uh, do scissors come with a Swiss Army knife? Maybe you do. Tweezers. Oh, you, yeah, you, you can. There's, there's one where there's like a little tiny little magnifying glass, um, but uh, yeah. No, but I well, I that is, I think a Swiss Army knife is it was is designed for that, isn't it? It's like you know, in a Precisely. in a situation of survival. So I, I think a Swiss Army knife. Uh, I think that's the only thing I can possibly think of in a in a, um, a non automated uh, existence. Fantastic. Well, David Lloyd. Thank you so much for sharing your comics for the apocalypse. It has been an absolute pleasure and an honour. And uh, not only are you episode 150, um, you're the first um, guest to go over two hours. So congratulations on that as well. Thank you so I much. Can't, well, I can't. Well, I, I can't believe it because I, I just tend to, to ramble on, uh, if, you know, now and again. So, uh, yeah, but you see... What's the point? I mean, what's the point of saying anything if you're not going to say enough? Exactly, exactly. You can never say enough, precisely. No. Fantastic. And uh, for all the listeners, uh, where can they find you online? Uh, well, they on, online, uh, well, the best place to go to um, is really uh, Aces Weekly. Um, it's a www.acesweekly.co.uk. Um, for Aces Weekly, which you should check out, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, I'm on Facebook, um, David Lloyd. Um, I mean, there's lots of David Lloyds on Facebook, but uh, um, mm-hmm. I'm sure you'll be able to find the right one um, if you look hard enough. And um, and uh, that's it. And uh, I do have a website um, which has been updated. It's not updated enough, but if you want my website, it's lforloyd.com. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, you you might want to – there's some uh, stuff on there. Um, but, uh, yeah, go to Facebook because, uh, you know, if you want to, yeah, see what I'm currently uh, uh, doing. To. 
yeah <laughs> fantastic yep. well all those links yep. are in the show notes folks so go uh, go click through and uh, check out what david's uh, up to at the moment and of course go check out aces weekly as well um and uh, in terms of uh now that events are going to be starting to take place again have you got any comic cons coming up uh no um I think there's no, I, not not in not in England. I'm I'm going to be doing some yeah. in France uh, soon, uh, Great. and mm-hmm. I I'm going to be in New York uh, at the end of uh, at the end of March, but nothing in England right now. No, nothing yet. Cool. Well, um, hopefully um, our paths will cross at Comic Con in the future. But uh, yeah, in the in the meantime, I've I've just thoroughly enjoyed our conversation just now, David. Thank you so much. And uh, as I say, it's been it's been a real honour to uh, to hear your comics for the apocalypse. Well, it, nice talking to you, Sam. And uh, yeah, it's been good for me too. Excellent. Speak to you soon. Okay, man. Bye bye. Thanks again to David for being on Comics for the Apocalypse. It was an absolute pleasure. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review for us on iTunes, Spotify, or whichever podcast service you use, as not only will it let me know that you liked it, but believe that it helps make other people aware of the show as well. If you'd like to check out David's work or follow him on social media, those links are in the show notes, along with all our own links to the various areas of the internet. Speaking of which, if you haven't already, be sure to visit Comic Scene's website at comicscene.org for comic news, the comic club, and other fun sequential art stuff. And finally, as long as the apocalypse doesn't come to pass in the next week, I'll see you next Monday. Bye for now.